0: Hi, you're listening to the Indie Bookshelf Podcast with me, Holly, and me, Amy, as we champion the indie book industry, from independent authors and publishers to independent bookshops. We have a range of literary discussions and book recommendations to indulge your love for all things bookish.
1: The Indie Bookshelf Podcast is brought to you by Asteria Press, our indie publishing house specialising in feel-good fantasy books.
0: And in today's episode, we take on a highly controversial topic – dispelling the myth that traditionally published books are better than indie books.
1: So make yourselves comfortable and let's dive right in.
0: Wonderful. Wow, I feel slightly, well, I'm I'm anticipating this episode. It feels like a big topic, Um, the whole kind of traditionally published versus indie published books. Um, But I thought it might be quite nice to just start off by kind of talking about where this myth comes from, because as with most um, stereotypes, there there tends to be reasons as to why, um, why a myth like this develops in the first place. So I thought it might be worth starting there before we um, start challenging it and unpicking those things. So Amy, I wonder whether you could just, um, for anyone who's maybe listening who isn't aware of um, the different kinds of publishing, could you maybe define the difference between traditional publishing and ink publishing?
1: Great, I can do that. Um, So traditional publishing is what people think of when they think of publishing, when you go into a bookshop. Most of the books there have been traditionally published. Um, And there is a bit of crossover with indie publishing as well. So I'm just going to, I'm going to dive right in. Traditional publishing are, you know, your Big Four, your Bloomsbury, your Penguins, your Simon and Schuster's. Just looking at my bookcase now to see... other publisher names but like you've all heard of them um their model that they use is authors will get an agent most most typically they'll get an agent and then the agent submits to the publishers to organize a contract um and that's that's the model um so two stages of gatekeeping and it's very profit at the top driven the total opposite of that. There we go. That's how I'm gonna. That's how I'm gonna um, frame this. The total opposite of that is self-publishing, where the author themselves takes their book. They might have some work done in it. With they can they can build their own team, their own editors, their own marketers if they like, and their own you know book cover designers. And they spend all of their money investing in their book, and they publish it themselves on their own website or on Amazon or Ingram uh, Spark or any of the other number, huge number of things that you can do this on. So that's the complete opposite end of the spectrum. There is no gatekeeper there, other than the amount of money that the author themselves is willing to invest. And then sitting in the centre of that, and this is very oversimplified, because there's lots of different kinds of publishing as well, but sitting in the centre of that is indie publishing, which are typically smaller publishing houses. I mentioned Bloomsbury with the traditional um, but they technically count as in independent publishers. Um, but, but generally speaking, they're, they're the smaller publishers, more community focused. Um, the author still has that contract relationship with the publisher, and the publisher still and the publisher is the one making the investment in the book. Um, so the book is published on the publisher's capital, but it's generally small scale with fewer gatekeepers and a larger scope for taking risks and fun choices with the books you can take on. Does that, I think that sums up, for the purposes of this discussion, I think that sums it up. I think that's great, I think it's
0: helpful seeing it as, um, you know, you've got traditional publishers one end of the spectrum, you've got with your big money, your big gatekeepers, um, the, the big names, you've got self-publishing on the other end of the spectrum where an author does it all themselves, and then you've got indie publishers in the middle. And I think um, to somebody who's new to the industry, as I was not that long ago, that's quite a helpful kind of um, image to have in your mind. Of um, And when we're talking about indie publishers, we will mainly be focusing on the publishers themselves. Every now and again, we might talk about self-publishing for um, and talk about that as part of this. But usually when we're talking about indie publishers, we're thinking of the small publishing houses, fewer gatekeepers, but still a process of um application and also um smaller communities, generally small, smaller titles, smaller money. Um but um yeah, sitting in that middle space. Um and I guess where this kind of myth comes from that traditionally published books are better than indie books, um, often comes from the fact that. We have all heard of traditionally published books. Like, we've heard of Penguin Random House. Um, whereas you haven't necessarily heard of an indie publishing house. There, there isn't that necessarily that trust in the publishing house that you've maybe um, received from something like a big, big four publisher. Um, but also, there's this idea that, you know, they get the best manuscripts. They have this really rigorous acceptance process with, like, two lots of gatekeepers. Whereas, like, with the indie books, it's more of an idea that they're almost like the rejects. Um and they're just not quite as good as the ones that will be published by the big names. Um, but also that they, you know, traditional publishers have more money, they have more connections. Um, there's this idea that they're the ones hiring the best talent in the industry, both on the author side, but also on the editing side and the marketing side. Um, and so I think that's kind of just created this idea. It's it's a bit like the kind of the allure of Oxbridge. You've got this kind of name of all well, the traditionally published houses must be um the best and and everyone else, all the indie publishing houses aren't aren't as good, and that's where that kind of idea comes from I guess um but I guess being an indie publishing house we we are gonna pick apart this myth, so we're gonna challenge it I we have a bias here but we yeah, I cannot promise that we won't be biased. <laughs> we have a very natural bias um but I think it's nice that you know we hear a range of um voices and opinions and often this is an opinion that it, it doesn't get heard as much um so it's nice to explore this um as an idea and with as ever we'd love to hear your thoughts so if this is a topic that interests you and you've got experience in this please do message into the podcast um we'll be having various like links down in the show notes and things um where you can do that you know to find so, us. you know to find us um Shall we start with challenge number one? So this idea that traditional publishers get the best manuscripts. Mm. Amy, do you want to start off with this?
1: I want to start, continue and finish this. (laughs) (laughs) I have so many words and I'm going to organise them all into something useful (coughs) so that no one gets annoyed. So the idea that traditional publishers get get the best manuscripts i don't think it's even you know held in the forefront of anyone's mind when they're buying a book they just see a book it's well produced and they take it um those weren't very good thoughts (laughs) it's all right it's all right (laughs) i'm working on it um But because you've got this like two layers of gatekeeping, there is that expectation that if you can't get through those layers, then surely you're not good good enough. Especially when you take um, some of the larger publishers that are, you know, there are 100 publishers all under a big cloak because there's so many imprints. And the more you, the more you dig, the more you think. Well, if if they can't get published by you know a specialised fantasy imprint of this big publisher, then that's because they're not wanted. That's because they must be rejects. And I think where that starts to fall apart, where where you're able to challenge that, is that even within these specific imprints, the commissioning editors of them are looking for something very specific they have a very specific criteria for what they're looking for and what they're looking for is something that they know will sell because every book they take on is a risk like i said before um both indie and traditional publishers are taking on all the financial risk and you want to know that it's going to at least break even most books don't break even but like you want to give it the best chance um And that means that there isn't much confidence in breaking the form, uh, breaking what's expected. So if the uh, manuscript being submitted to an agent or the agent showing it to a uh, commissioning editor is too different, then it might not be accepted, not based on its quality or even its marketability Entirely based on its proven marketability, which, you know, isn't very fair for anyone writing anything, you know, at all unique. Mm. Um, so I think that's, that's the the first challenge against publishers are getting the best publishers. Uh, traditional big publishers are getting the best manuscripts. They're not. They're getting the safest manuscripts. They're getting the manuscripts mm. that... That's a bit mean but they're getting the manuscripts that they believe in and what they believe in is based on their setback lists and what they've already done and their provable evidence. And that doesn't lead to any uh, easy, ambitious uh, signings.
0: Mm. No, I think that's a really good point about the priority of what they're looking for. Um, And it was interesting. I was listening to a podcast where there was an author who'd chosen self-publish in the end and she had been a wedding photographer and she'd written a rom-com based around the perspective of of a wedding photographer um and she just couldn't get it published but she received a lot of um very positive feedback from editors but the problem that she kept getting was we've already got one wedding book on our list this year try again next year kind of thing um and I think this is the thing is that There was that preconceived criteria that they could only publish one book about a wedding that was a rom-com and it already, that slot had been taken. Um, So it wasn't about the quality of the book at all. But I also think, you know, with this idea of the gatekeeping and that this creates a certainty that you're going to have a brilliant book. I think part of me then always asks, well, why do we always then hear about these best-selling books that have multiple rounds of rejections? And we can think of hundreds of examples i mean harry potter is a very well-known example of a book that's been a best-selling series but it was rejected like 13 times by different publishers um, before it finally got signed and that immediately starts to make you question to what extent can people predict um what are going to be the books that connect with people or you know the best seller bestseller chicken soup for the soul was rejected 144 times by agents and publishers um or if we're thinking about um things more down the um sort of fantasy and sci-fi um route like the book dune which is like a sci-fi epic received 23 different rejections from publishers um or the help which many people might have heard of absolutely best-selling awesome book by catherine stockett received 60 rejections from agents i mean we can just go on and on and on mm. about this i think but the yeah no you go for you
1: Uh, touched on two very interesting examples there. One of them being Rowling's uh, Harry Potter. Um, I believe, I could be wrong, this could be a a truism, Um, I believe she went direct to publishers rather than to agents. So her 12 Mm. rejections were like pure publisher rejections. Uh, But the person, the person, the publisher that picked her up in the end was Bloomsbury at the time, a independent publisher, that saw her book and they saw uh, uniqueness and something exciting, something that they were passionate about in their book, and they picked it up based on that. And the Eleven that had rejected her before had rejected her because what she was writing was different. Just her first, I won't get into it now, but her first page of this book is just completely different to all of the other fantasy children's books out there especially at the time so it was too much of a risk for these these publishers that she initially uh contacted whereas bloomsbury at the time a smaller indie press were able to be driven by that passion june is the other example now this could be completely wrong but i'm fairly certain that initially june was picked up by a publisher that published uh manuscripts on car manufacturing oh wow (laughs) i'm actually i'm gonna check on that before we publish this but i'm fairly certain june was picked up by a car manufacturing like publishing book publishing thing that read it and went this is incredible the world needs to see this because they were passionate about it and they they were small enough to be able to take that risk so that's that's kind of comes into what we were saying earlier, that big publishers aren't getting the best books. They're getting the books that weigh up in their cost benefit analysis, um, mm. their risk-benefit analysis.
0: That's fascinating. I didn't know either of those little, little tidbits. That's that's great. <laughs> um, and I think one thing sort of added on to this um, is I think it's interesting that we're seeing more and more, if I say successful high-class authors, choosing to go down either the indie publishing route or the self-publishing route, rather than going with traditional publishing. Um, So I'm going to give two examples here. So Orna Ross, who's a poet and fiction author, she got published with Penguin, um, but had a bad experience there and decided then to self-publish. And so she's now a real champion for self-publishing um, author industry but also Brandon Sanderson in the fantasy and sci-fi genre um, again he's been published by by big publishers but he's chosen to do a kickstarter to crowdfund um, and kickstart and do self-publishing for his next four novels um, and again I think that's a really interesting sign that you know when when really good authors are then paving the way for doing more self-publishing or indie publishing routes that, that's a sign again that it It really isn't about only the best authors get picked by these traditionally published um, routes. In fact, you can find amazing authors in any um, of the three spectrums of of publishing. Um, And I think now might be a good moment to highlight Jacaranda Books as an indie publishing house, which does an amazing job of highlighting diverse voices. So I think, Amy, you know more about Jacaranda, so I'm gonna pass over to you for this.
1: I will always highlight Jacaranda Books And again, like, they're just such a key example of how publishing isn't, publishers, big publishers aren't picking up the best manuscripts, because Jacaranda exists, because they thought that being in the industry, as black women, they would be able to, you know, influence what was being picked up, and... Again, I could I could talk for a whole separate hour on this, Um, but but they couldn't. And they were they were unable to publish diverse voices in within these big publishers because they were seen as a risk. Um, Because there was no proven market of of uh, people buying black books and black people buying books because there were no publishers publishing what they wanted to read. So Jacarana Books went, screw this, I'm going to start my own publishing house. And they now only publish um, voices from the Black community, Black British authors primarily. And they sell fantastically because of course they do, because of course Black British authors exist and of course Black British readers exist. They were just underserved by the big publishing uh, industry because those books weren't being published. And that ends up being a cyclical issue. No one's buying the books because we're not publishing the books, and there's never ever any edit- evidence, so it doesn't get done. And jack around books just did books.
0: Yeah, I think that's really could be the tagline for this whole um, podcast episode. It's just like a jack around the books. Um, do go check them out, and we'll mm. we'll be linking um, to their website and things. But yeah, I think it it's just sad, really that the traditional publishing houses often have an issue with publishing um, diverse voices because of that uh, cost benefit analysis and it's amazing that people at Jackaranda Books are are stepping in and and fulfilling that need because we need to hear stories from every different perspective Um, and... Yeah, I think it's inspiring for us as a small startup indie press, looking at someone like Jacaranda Books and the amazing success they've been and, and what they do and saying, you know what, we wanna follow in those footsteps and and learn from what they're doing. Um, And I think I'm just gonna add one last um piece of evidence to this kind of challenge of the idea that traditional publishers get the ma- best manuscripts. And that's simply from personal experience of reading indie books. Um, and I'm going to highlight one one book that we um, have well, said on the podcast recently, Hester by uh, Laurie Lee Carbonese, published by Duckworth Books, which is an indie publishing house um, with a small team of about seven. And honestly, you, would, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know that it's not published by a traditional publisher in the sense of that the manuscript quality is fantastic, that the way it's been produced is incredible. They're you it's very easy to think kind of in these categories of like oh, traditionally published books are super different to indie published books and then when you actually have the books in your hands um it's often very difficult to tell if not impossible Um,
1: Mm. i think the way you can tell as well um so duckworth books have existed for 125 years um they're they're a big name in indie publishing i think the way you can tell is if you look at the backlist for Duckworth books, compared to the backlist for any given major publisher. The difference is the care and attention and passion in each of the books that they publish. I would go as far as saying that every book that a, a, any given indie publisher picks up is fantastic. because the level of risk that each book carries is so much greater each book has a a greater uh, percentage of risk to you know earn out its uh advance and all the money that has been invested in in editing and whatnot there is no book that can can just carry the others on its success so every book has to be five star. Whereas the model of big publishers is that you, you aim for one incredibly successful book and and hope that the the financial success of that book carries the other 50 that you've published. And that means that by, you know, book 45, it doesn't need to be that good quality anymore. It just needs to exist. Um, this is a sweeping generalization, of course, but by and large, indie publishers have to, every single book that they put out, give it 100%. And major publishers just don't have that same same issue.
0: An indie publisher, like we were hearing at the seminar on indie publishing at the London Book Fair, an indie publisher can't afford to make a risk, can't afford to make a loss on any book. Um, Or if they are going to make a loss, it needs to be a very small loss. Um, whereas that's something that the traditional publishers don't have to have in mind. And so, yeah, of course, that's going to be a, a spur on to produce the best quality you you can. And so I think this actually leads us quite nicely to our second um, sort of takedown point, which is this idea that traditional publishers get the best talent, both from an author perspective, but also from a um, editing and like all the behind the scenes work, um, like the marketing and PR and all that kind of thing. Um And the indie publishers just don't get that talent in the same way. Um, And I think the first thing to talk about here is actually that there are real barriers to entry to traditional publishing. Um, So one big thing is the traditional publishers are all based in London, um, which is the centre of the publishing industry in the UK. Um, But entry level jobs in traditional publishing are really low paid. And that means that lots of people simply can't afford to take that risk. Of taking that first job, um, or can't get in because if you've only got a three month contract to do a an internship or something, you can't afford to move your whole life to London for three months with no guarantee that that contract is going to continue. And so that in itself means that only people of a certain background can necessarily afford to take those risks. Um, now there are charities out there like the Book Trust which do a really amazing job of trying to help people from diverse backgrounds make that transition to London and and, and get into the industry. But it is an industry wide issue and it's not by any means sorted yet. And so for one thing, the best talent isn't necessarily being taken simply because of the backgrounds people come from.
1: Yes, the publishing industry on pretty much every level, isn't accessible. Um, And Holly, you touched on a really great point about the pay. I mean, even for a permanent full-time employed role, at entry level, the pay isn't enough to cover rent, trains, food, like just the cost of existing as a human being in London. The entry level salary isn't enough. They also have a really big problem with progression. So you you might be able to get a entry level job and you might just be able to grasp for two years. Um, to be able to exist on an entry-level job in London in publishing. But then the co- level of competition to get that that next, like pay grade, that next uh, job role is so high that you then might end up getting stuck at entry level for much lo- longer than you would in any other industry. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely um, a big
0: issue within the within mm. the industry. So, just continuing um, on a slightly different note about the the best talent, um, it also isn't the case that all the the talent that does exist in those traditional publishing houses goes to every single book, because as you can imagine, if you're a big traditional publishing house and you've got a big title like Prince Harry's memoir of Spare, and you know it's going to be an international bestseller, you're going to put your best time and energy and your best talent into that book. You're going to do the big push on that one, which necessarily means that other books published by, if I say real authors, um, aren't going to... Sorry, that was a slight jive. (laughs) That's fine, I'll give you it. (laughs) It was ghostwritten by by a very successful ghostwriter. Um, But you take my point that um, authors who aren't then celebrities um, aren't going to get that same time and energy and attention um, because... The traditional publishing houses are going to make sure that they're, they're big bestsellers that they want to bring in all that income from that they're the ones that are going to be prioritised.
1: Yes, I would hate to put all of that time and effort, and it is a huge amount of time and effort into getting an agent, having like working on my agent to get a publisher, and then getting my my like final publish date. You know, maybe three, four, years down the line, and it being the same week that David Walliams is published, because. I mean, never mind everything else, the marketing effort just won't go to me. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and it's, um, for a traditionally published author, you're looking at about 10 years before you even get signed on to an agent. It's the average length of time it takes to um, so even get a literary agent. And then you add on the years of then getting it to a publisher. I mean, to only have, yeah, that time and effort not go into your book. Um, whereas again, with an indie publisher, if that book is taken on, it is going to be made into the best it possibly can be because the indie publisher cannot afford to make a loss because they're not signing on David Williams and Prince Harry and and these big celebrity names and relying on them to do
1: hey. the income work for them. <laughs> Mr Prince William, if you're listening and you've written a cosy <laughs> fantasy, we will publish it. I don't think we will, but I also don't think he's listening. <laughs> Oh, you never know.
0: <laughs> so, um and again, we just want to highlight Jacaranda as like um an example of Jacaranda as an indie publishing house was set up by people who had been in the traditional publishing industry. So this amazing talent of these black women who were in the industry and not getting heard and not getting their voices across, then decided to go indie because it was a place where they were going to be able to flourish and thrive and and write the kind of stories that they wanted to write and produce the kind of stories and publish the ones that they wanted to tell. Um, and so again, that's a beautiful example of, it's really not a case of the traditional publishing houses get all the best talent and the indie houses don't get any of it. Um, there's there's much more of a cross vitalization between the two than um, that.
1: It's uh, Valerie Brandes at um, Jacaranda Books, by the way. Uh, her name just popped into my head <laughs> we should probably use it. Valerie, she's fantastic. Boy, go Valerie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, should we move on to our third point, um, which is taking down the myth that only traditional publishers have the rigorous selection process. That means they get the best books. Um, would you like to start off on this one, Amy?
1: I mean, yeah. Such an easy myth to take down because, like... Every, every like publisher has, not every publisher, I see you've got a note here, um, has a selection process. Um, I'm sure many of you listeners have gone through the absolute trials of submitting to journals, um, to literary journals. And I mean, even the grassroots of grassroots literary journals, get hundreds of submissions i uh worked with a lit journal through their submissions once and they were on maybe their second publication they had no funding they were a small team of volunteers and hundreds we had a whole spreadsheet set up with um our values or their values and the things that they were looking for and we were to rate everything one to seven um on you know quality and meeting values and meeting the you know genre expectation and i mean that was just for a very small startup lit lit mag so of course an indie publisher is going to have a selection process um you might not necessarily need an agent although some of the bigger indie publishers do work with agents um but yes, they still have a selection process because, as we said before, they're still looking for the top, tippity topest of quality.
0: And I think this is a moment to just highlight um, what a vanity press is, because um, some listeners may have heard of or come across adverts from publishers um, who offer that they will publish your book regardless of... You know, they won't have any selection process, but you pay them to publish your book. So I wonder whether you could just explain a bit more to Vanity Press as Amy and how that differs from an indie publisher.
1: Yes, I can do. Um, yes, there's van- Vanity Press. They also operate under terms like hybrid publishing and um, assisted publishing. Um, obviously, there are some hybrid publishing services that are legitimate and you know vest everything uh ally the alliance of independent authors are fantastic for that so check them out um, but in a nutshell with uh publishing indie publishing and big big name traditional publishing the book is the product and that is how that is how the publisher will make money the book is how the publisher will make money and the book is how the author will make money because the book is what's being sold. The book is the product. With vanity publishing, the author is the product. I think that's the easiest way to sum it up. Um, You approach a vanity publisher, or in some cases they approach you, and that's a big red flag. Um, I'm sure your book is great, but it's not that great. And they ask you for money. You pay them, you know, upwards of a thousand pounds, much upwards of a thousand pounds, and they do a list of services to varying degrees, once they have that money from you, that's the guaranteed money. We've talked a lot about risk in this episode. There is no risk for the publisher because they've already been paid. The risk here for you is that they then don't, you know, invest in marketing because why would they? They already have their money. Um, So, yeah, with Vanity Publishing they're making money off you and you're still making money off the book and you've, you know, up with your cash to do so.
0: Yeah. And so it's worth saying that um, we're, we're going to make a distinction between the indie publishing houses, which have that selection process. Um, usually they'll pay an author upfront. So it's the author who's getting paid um, rather than the other way around, rather than a vanity press um, where you don't have a selection process. But I think, It's worth at this moment just highlighting the self-publishing industry because they don't have a rigorous selection process in the same way. It's basically if if as an author, you decide you want to publish your book, you take that on. There's no gatekeeper there um, to do that quality work for you. Um, And yet it isn't true that the quality of self-publishing books is really poor. In fact, self-publishing authors... They will hire editors if they know what they're doing. They will hire cover designers. They will get beta readers involved. They will put in a lot of effort and a lot of time into self-publishing. And often, if you're a self-published author, you have a direct connection with a reader, meaning you create that kind of reading community and that community around you. Um, And there are some amazing quality self-published books out there. I'm just going to highlight a book that's just come out recently called The Diary of a Bengali Newlywed, um, written by the author of, I think it was Secret Diary of a of an arranged marriage. Um, Absolutely beautiful, um, amazing rom-com books. Um, She described um, it as like the brown Bridget Bridget Jones. Um, And definitely worth checking out. And I just want to also highlight a book um, that I read recently. So I read a cozy fantasy book called The House Witch, um, which I'm pretty sure is self-published. I tried to look this up and couldn't find much information. So I see Amy going into research mode right now. and what I loved about this book is that at this particular moment, I could tell it was self-published or I could tell that it it hadn't been traditionally published, put it that way, um, because of the way that the writing uh, flowed. I really loved the book and the fact that it didn't have, if I say the polish that I might expect from a traditionally published book really didn't bother me because the, the quality of the idea and the quality of the the essence and the heart behind the writing was just so beautiful. Um, And it's been doing really, really well in terms of sales and things. And I think that's testament to the fact that, you know, maybe this isn't the the highest quality going to be a New York Times bestseller. And yet, as a reader, I really don't care. I just want a great book. Yes. Onwards, let's, we've just kind of taken down three kind of challenges to this idea that a traditionally published book is better than an indie book. But mm-hmm. I think it might also be just nice looking at a moment for like what are actually the advantages of an indie press um over a traditionally published press sometimes. I don't know whether you want to again kick off with this in always.
1: Yes. There are so many advantages to an in- indie press. Um obviously there are lots of things to consider, and that's a whole other episode. Um but we're here to celebrate indie, so <laughs> I think one of the big things is that there's a smaller team and a smaller book list, and that means every book that we pick, every book that you know members of other indie presses pick, is a book that they're passionate about and a book that's going to re- receive quality attention, um, and not one that's going to be swept aside if something bigger comes along. Because actually, what like you, if they pick you, you are what they want. Um, you're not just filler for what they want um which is just I mean I think that's the huge the huge advantage is that every book is picked based on passion Mm.
0: and I think along with that um my understanding is that authors tend to be more involved along the whole route with an indie press because it's a smaller team because there's a smaller um list of books being published um you as the author get more say um and They get more of an involvement in, say, the marketing side and how they want to be involved in in that side of things. And obviously, if you go to self-publishing, you you go to the full extreme and then the author has complete control. That isn't quite the the same in an indie publishing house because um, it is the publishing house itself that's taking that financial risk. So at the end of the day, they're going to be the final decision makers. Um, But they're often much more willing to do collaborations with authors and much more willing to have the author involved in the process. Um and bring them onto that publishing team really. Mm.
1: Um yeah. well, Kim, I think it authors to to play play to their strengths.
0: hundred percent. And I think it's worth saying here, you know, one of the potential downsides of an indie press for an author compared to a traditionally published publishing house is an indie publishing house is not gonna pay you a six-figure book deal for your debut book um as an author advance. They're just they're not gonna have the money to do that. Having said that, very few traditionally published authors will get that massive big baby. I mean, you've, you've got to really strike gold to to get there. And
1: even if you think it's not going to work out to, you know, minimum wage <laughs> again.
0: Exactly. But I think with an indie press, there is still much value in that they really can kickstart author careers. And um, they can also transform lives. You know, it, it's a transformational experience having a book published. Um especially if that book has been you know taken on um by a publishing house and and really given some care and attention by them and that's a an experience that an indie publishing house can give an author even if they can't always give um you know a huge life changing amount of money
1: <laughs> yes, weigh that up with the weigh fact up. that neither can the big publishers uh but in most cases, <laughs> in mean, almost all. But I think another, I guess it's almost a uh, benefit of indie publishing. And it, it goes back to the kick starting the author careers. And it also links into the fact that indie publishers take those risks that big publishers don't. And what that's doing is providing that data, that market data that, hey, the books that this particular author is writing, they're marketable. We can do it. So often what you'll see is uh, an author starting their career with an indie publisher and then later on the line, along the line, being able to like get picked up by a, a bigger publisher. Because they then have, you know, a proven platform, a proven track, track record, record of um, creating marketable books, which I guess is both the advantage and disadvantage of indie presses.
0: I guess I want to highlight one more example and this is I'm going to have to look up what the names of all of this thing is because I can't I remember the example itself but not the name so I apologize for that in advance um but this is the case of um there was a book which was written like as a stream of consciousness and it was written by from the perspective of a woman who was like baking a pie
1: Mm. and it was a
0: huge chunk of a book you know like a a massive volume and it was the kind of book which no traditional publisher was going to like choose with a barge pole. Like it was kind of one of those, whoa, that is wacky. And it got picked up by a um an indie publishing house which you decided to give it a um a shot. Um and it ended up getting shortlisted for the Booker Prize. And this indie house nearly went bust because they then suddenly had to print like thousands of this book because suddenly everyone wanted to read it because it had been shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Um and I think that's an amazing example of how an indie publishing house can really uh, kick-start an author career and, and transform lives and, and take those risks um, that maybe a published, um, pub- traditional publishing house can't necessarily, or will choose not to. I'm also just going to highlight, um, I think there's something here about supporting the small independent businesses as well. Um, and there's that thing about, you know, an indie publishing house will often be a very small team. Sometimes they're run by volunteers. Sometimes they're run by salaried employees, but a very small team of them. They tend to be a very grassroots publishing economy. They are better able to create direct connections with readers, and they're part of what makes the publishing industry much more diverse, much richer. It um, gives more competition, more voices, um, because they are those small voices and small independent businesses um, that are standing up to like the, the big giants of the industry. And it's worth just giving it a little highlight for that and a little, little boost um, and champion for the small businesses.
1: Nice. So that that just about wraps up our, um, you know, main body of talking. Uh, so as always, we're going to wrap up with um, a little bit of news, some updates. Uh, first, being we went to the London Book Fair. Wahoo! It was so good. <laughs> We were there representing Asteria Press. Um, very cool to have um, Asteria Pre- Amy Hill, uh, commissioning editor Asteria Press on my badge. Right, oh, yeah. <laughs> Do this. Um, so yes, a big highlight for me. I mean, I'm to cop out, but it was <laughs> I was just meeting all of my publishing industry buddies. I mean, it's such a it's such a, a like a human industry. It relies so much on. I want to call it networking but really it's like developing friendships gross (laughs) um just you know like building relationships and that's a huge part of the london book fair for a lot of people so like just being able to go and and see all these people that i haven't seen for a year especially since you know i'm not based in london um was fantastic
0: yeah i think for me one of the highlights was simply the the buzz and the atmosphere and and being in that place soaking up this just passion of the books um and that was so inspirational and it's uh, really motivated me now coming back um despite getting covid um there's that real boost now. London Book Fair was awesome. And we it was an amazing place to launch Asteria Press into the publishing industry. And um, we gave out tons of bookmarks and made some amazing friends, caught up with old friends, um, which was amazing. Besides that, work is continuing on the novel, which we are revealing the title of. Oh, I can reveal the title on this, can't I? Because it won't go out. You can. Oh, so our novel which is called A Case of Dragons. And the series title is the Castilian Empire series. So it now has a title, very exciting. And the book cover is uh, well underway. A preliminary sketch has been done. Um, so And the conceptual art has been done. So that's now moving along.
1: And Amy, you're, you're editing. Yes, the editing. I've gotten the first wedge of edits back from you, which is very exciting. It will be last week that I started line edits, plodding through those, making your words be better words, um, telling you what you actually meant to say, that kind of thing.
0: I love this working relationship, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Just just tell me what I'm trying to say. That would be great. No, I hear Um, you,
1: I hear you, but, like, did you mean this?
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is wonderful. Um, So, yes... Work is progressing on A Case of Dragons, which is very exciting. In terms of the podcast, um, we had initially planned to just do six episodes for our first season and then um, take a break before coming back for another season. But um, we're enjoying ourselves so much and the um, we're picking up uh, lovely listeners like yourselves. So we've decided to continue and we will be doing um, continuing to do our podcast once a month from now on so we'll be back in a few weeks time with the topic what is cozy
1: fantasy in the meantime this is where you can find us on twitter we are at press Asteria. uh, and mastodon at press mm, that's wrong at hysteria press at bookstodon.com and on facebook
0: and instagram we are at Asteria press so come along say hello Uh, tell us your thoughts about publishing about fantasy we would love to hear from you it makes it more of a conversation
1: in the meantime keep reading keep reading